Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you. It is great to worship together, and it is a joy just to sing truths about Jesus and to do it together. Just to hear you all sing, to be a part of this, is it's such a gift. And so I pray that it lands on you as a gift, and I ask now that you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans. And we are in a study in the book of Romans entitled, For the Love of God, and we find ourselves in Romans chapter 5. So if you would turn or click to Romans chapter 5 so that we could behold together the love of God on full display. And we're seeking to answer this one question, how do we know He loves us? How do we know the creator of the universe loves us. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and actually 1 to 11, because that's where we're going to be focusing in on 6 to 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'll pray for us. So let's look at the Word of God together. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, these are beautiful words. This is your word. We ask that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that a beautiful miracle-making type work would happen. That we would hide your word in our hearts. So that we might not sin against you. Father, we pray that we would be shocked by your love for your people. I pray that it would not be a concept, but it would be a reality that sets us free, gives us joy, creates courage in timid hearts, creates thankfulness amidst discouragement, creates peace amidst fear, That, Father, you would convince us that you love us and that love is enough. Thank you that we get to stop and hear your word. May we not take it for granted. May we enjoy you in this moment. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever said these words? I love you. Isn't it amazing? Just three little words. And the power that can be communicated by three little words. I love you. If someone says it to you in certain contexts, it might make you blush. If someone says it in other contexts, it brings a sense of comfort. 
If someone says it in another sense or another context, it might just make your heart be filled with thanksgiving. But these words have power to affect the emotions, to affect the heart. However, some never heard those words growing up. Those words create a special sense of longing because they never heard it from those who were closest. Some heard those words but never saw actions that even resembled love. Some say it, and what it means when they say it is, because I'm around you, I feel all fuzzy. And that's what it can mean. It's just like, and it can even like come at a moment of like, just kind of a rush of adrenaline. And then even before you know it, it's like, I love you. And then you think about what in the world that might mean. I love you means some for some that I believe you are the one to help fill my needs. But biblical love is so much deeper. Biblical love, it includes affections. It has a stirring attached to it. It can be deeply emotional, but at its core, it means I choose you. I choose you and it's reciprocal. It's I want to be with you. You are enjoyable. I love being around you. And when I don't feel like being around you, (laughs) when I'd actually rather be somewhere else, love still says I choose you. Because it's an action. It doesn't just receive. It gives. It says I choose you and I'm not letting you go. Love is saying I am for you even when I don't feel like it. It's powerful words. Remarkable concept. Utterly Christian in its essence. Because you will never truly know the depth of love until you know the one who made it, which is Jesus. How do we know love? If I asked you, how do you know you're loved? Oh, they spent time with me. They said words of love. They were actions of sacrifice. There's a sense of endurance. They were fighting for me even when it was hard to put my needs above theirs. And we've got stories of love, right? Even in society, you've got stories of love. Somebody donating an organ. Like, when someone donates a kidney, and like you're not going to get that back. And it's like, okay, I'm giving it to you because I care for you. I think higher of you than I do of both my kidneys. I mean, like, all of a sudden you, like, step back and like, wow, what's that? There's stories of people healthily, not in an enabling way, but enduring years with an addict friend or family member when they get nothing in return. It's love. Stories of love where people endure those hard phases of church life. Saying, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this mission. I love you and you're worth it. There's one story that keeps coming back to my mind when I think about love. It's a man named Robert McQuilkin. Born in 1927, he eventually became the president of Columbia Bible Institute. And in 1990, at age of 63... Many would still say, you got plenty of years to create more accolades. He was pretty well known, had a lot of gifts. He retired, resigned his post of presidency of Columbia Bible Institute so that, as he said, I could keep my word to love my wife. For she was suffering of dementia. And for 12 years, he loved her until her death. These kind of stories, they're shocking. Those pictures, as great as they are, are a small fraction of the picture of God's love for us. It blows your mind. This passage calls us to look at Jesus and to look at our lives to answer this question, how do we know God loves us. How do we know it? And really, why does it matter? Why does it matter 
that God loves us. Today is a reminder. If you get nothing else, write it down, tattoo it on your arm, I don't care. God loves me because of faith in Christ. He loves you. And Paul seeks to prove it in Romans chapter 5. He seeks to prove it. Now, some people, they just want to be loved, to know they're not throwaway, that someone wants them. They've been rejected by many, and just to hear those words, it means that I matter, I count for something. And so you want to hear those words, it means I am accepted, I am loved. For others, if you say, I love you, you're just like, why does that matter? Why does it matter? What if we prove that God loves us? Why does it matter? Well, Paul tells us why it matters. When we dive into Romans chapter 5, right after he has just been convincing us of our sinfulness and our badness, he talks about how we are justified by faith alone, not by our ability to make ourselves right with God, but by trusting that Jesus alone can make us right with him. And so he says these words, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he just goes. You want to know why does it matter that God loves us? Here's the list. The love of God has justified those who trust him. The love of God has justified, declared not guilty, sinners who are guilty, because you've been loved. You've been loved. He has been laboring to tell sinners who only deserve God's judgment that they can be forgiven and miraculously declared not guilty. Not by doing for God and putting Him in our debt, but by faith, by receiving all that we could not earn, we receive what God has done for us. And so because of that, because his love justifies sinners by faith, we have, here's another benefit of the love of God, peace with God. We should be enemies. We should receive the just wrath of God, eternal punishment and separation from him. Instead, miracle of miracles, he calls us friends, family. There's no greater reconciliation between those who should be apart than to say, now we're chums, we're buddies, we're pals. More than that, we're family. And because of that, we know the love of God for us because it says in chapter 5, verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace, we stand in grace. The love of God gives grace to sinners who trust in Him in order that we might have peace with God. See, when God tells us that we're saved by faith in God's doing for us, not our doing for Him, it means that our being rescued, it said in chapter 4, it rests on grace. It's not something we can do. It just rests upon God, our need for God to do for us. You follow that? Grace. And that grace did some amazing things to show us the love of God for us. His grace wipes away sin. His grace gives us the righteousness of Jesus. His grace allows him to look at us, not with scorn, but with pleasure. And he says, I love you. I delight in you. All of that is the love of God for us in grace. But grace, according to Romans 5, is not just grace that gets you in the door and then leaves you high and dry. There's not only saving grace, there is sustaining grace, which is what we're looking at in chapter 5, verse 2. It's a grace that keeps on giving. When I talk to my kids about grace, I say it is God's help that we don't deserve. He doesn't just help us get into the family and then say, you're on your own. It's grace that says, I am still helping you. Mercies are new every morning. I will give you all that you need to do what I've asked you to do. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, day after day, moment by moment, second by second. It's grace. And 
that grace, that constant delight of God upon us is a benefit of the love of God for us. We've got access into that grace. We've, have you ever done an escape room? I love escape rooms. They're a lot of fun. And when you do an escape room, they're usually multiple rooms. But I guess they don't want to call them escape rooms. So you're like in a room, several that I've done, and you search for several clues. And once you get to a certain point, you hear this click. And there's a door that springs open. And you go into this next room with a bunch of amazing other things that are going on in this other room. And so then you got to solve that. And then all of a sudden, once you solve a bunch of other clues, you hear click. And now you go out and you're out of these rooms. You've escaped and, you know, you're in the world and you've got everything you need. You've, you can boast of your escape. So escape rooms, I find them a lot of fun. What's interesting here, by faith in Jesus Christ, he is saying His grace not only rescues you from sin, but it gives you access. Access into a grace that constantly is serving you, that you might love God, that you might enjoy Him forever. You get access into something you don't have apart from His work in your life. And the good news is, it's not you working to get those clues. He's given you everything you need. It's his rescue, but it's a saving grace and a sustaining grace. You want to know the benefits of the love of God? It's not only justification. It's not only peace with God. It's not only grace, but it's hope. It's hope. It says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. His love for us produces hope in our hearts. And there's a sense of faith that happens in the heart that that hope won't put us to shame. It won't disappoint us. Only love produces that. Now this word right here, verse, chapter uh, 5, verse 2, it says we rejoice. Joy is very interesting, right? Joy is a, it's a feeling, it's an emotion. But joy also has accompanying it words. Joy speaks. It doesn't just stay in, it speaks. As Jeff Vanderstelt says, You talk about what you love, and you love what you talk about. Joy does that, right? It's not only a feeling you have, it's like, woo, I love what I just did. I love that. There's something in here. Now, some of you might be like, woo, and others of you might be like, volumes much louder, depending on your personality, but you still talk about it. I found even the most introverted people, they still talk about the joy that's in their heart, and they talk about what they love. The love of God produces a joy in us and a longing in us that one day we'll be with Him forever. There's a glory to come. And because God's love has been poured out into our hearts, we have confidence we're going to get there. That's the argument of the text. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts because the Holy through the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit. So because the Holy Spirit has come, we know the love of God for us and the fact that he loves us will get us to the end so we've got hope. And because we have hope, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see how it's connected to love. We boast We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm reading a book called Evangelism is Exiles. And the book is really good. But as I've been going through the book, this man who is writing it, who was a missionary in an unreached country in Central Asia, I think it was, he tells this story of a time when he and his wife were inside the house. His kids were outside playing. And they look out this window in the distance and their 11-year-old son is out playing with some kids or is being approached by some kids who are known in the community as at minimum bullies, at maximum they would inflict pain. 
And they're out there playing, and he sees, the dad sees in the distance, or the mom sees in the distance a kid picking up a rock about the size of someone's head and was like this, running at the 11-year-old. And she screams out for the dad to come, and the dad comes, and they're just paralyzed looking out the window. In that moment, they had no clue what to do. And then all of a sudden, they see yelling and dialogue, and then the person sets the rock down, and they just storm off, clearly angry, and the 11-year-old runs home. When the 11-year-old comes in the door, obviously mom and dad squeeze this child. Are you okay? Are you okay? What in the world happened out there? This group asked me, he says, this 11-year-old, if I believe that Jesus was God. And I told them that I did. And they were ready to pick up this rock and hit me with it. And so I told them, 11-year-old, I told them, you can go ahead and throw that rock at me and kill me, but when you do, I will go to be with Jesus. And I'm not afraid of you. (laughs) I was like, you are kidding. And they just hugged him. And it was like, that's the hope of glory. That's the hope of glory. The worst you can do is kill me. And the greatest thing that could ever happen to me is to be with Jesus. And to hear that out of the mouth of an 11-year-old is humbling. But it is also beautiful. That the love of God was poured out into that kid's heart. When a hope exists, it's an evidence of the love of God. And the love of God produces the hope. Cyclical. Because of this broken world, this broken world does not get the final say, Paul says. It doesn't. So not only do we rejoice in the fact that one day we'll be with Jesus forever, and that's enough, and that's glorious, and that's better than this earth. He says that we rejoice in suffering because suffering produces something. It produces an endurance, and that endurance makes us stronger in our character, and that character gives us more hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint us. As Pastor Travis did such an amazing job last week in preaching, I was so encouraged by that sermon. There's this sense that we can, as he said, trust the process. And if you trust God's word, that when suffering comes, it's creating endurance. It's creating character. It actually is leading that it will deepen our hope. It's an evidence that the love of God is working. If you can trust the process, it's an evidence that the love of God is working. So your character improves, as he shared last time, with over 5, 10, 12 years. That's an evidence that the love of God has been with you. Many of you have gone through some deep pain in your life. But it was in that deep pain when you saw the comfort of Jesus in ways that you never saw it had you not have suffered. You knew his presence. You knew his faithfulness in deeper ways. And although it felt like in the moment you were hanging on by a thread that could break with just the slightest blow, kept you. He kept you. Inexplicably, you still say, I trust you. And sometimes you don't even have the words to say. But even in your heart, there was a sense of, I'm leaning into you, Jesus. I'm not leaning away. And all of that, in massive imperfection, and doubts spinning through the mind, there's a trajectory of, I trust you. And so we can rejoice that suffering is not pointless because it is reminding us of that which he has done in our heart. It is that he has poured out the love of God in our lives. He's keeping us by his love. And so we can trust, we can trust that our God is at work. And just a side note on this issue. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. We must be careful because many of us 
in our world and in this church, our friend groups, our family groups, we're tempted not to endure. And there are consequences. There are consequences. If endurance leads to character, and character leads to hope, the willingness to avoid struggle at all cost means that there is something that affects our character and the volume will be turned down on our hope. But the love of God has been poured out in our hearts so that His grace will constantly be at work so that we can endure. And He will make us stronger in our hearts and the hope volume knob will be turned up because we endure through difficult things. I know it's hard. But why does it matter? Why does it matter to say God loves you? All those reasons and here are some others. When you feel unloved and betrayed, God's love for you is not tainted by that sin. Every imperfect action done towards you, every hurtful word said to you, every sense of betrayal can actually serve as a pointer to why the love of God matters. Because His love isn't like that. His love doesn't diminish. His love does not hurt. It only blesses you. Now you might not define your experience as blessing. And I know that it feels like a sense of hurt. But the aim is not hurt. The aim is to build up. He loves you. Everything you are longing for, and yet all of your earthly experiences leave you feeling dropped. Everything you are longing for is found in the love of God for you. So it matters that God loves you. And because He loves you, you need not be afraid. You need not be afraid because His love says, I'm with you and I'm not going to leave you. You'll never be alone. His love says, I am for you and not against you. You constantly have an advocate, so don't be afraid. You need not be discouraged. We know discouragement. No matter what I am doing, the love of God says this. No matter what I am doing, I am always working for your good, God says. We never have to wonder if God is working behind the scenes when we can't see it. He is. His love tells us He is. We never have to wonder if He has a plan and if that plan's going to like work out. The love of God says it will. You need not be hopeless because He loves you. He says, I choose you and you never have to be an outsider again. You're in my family and that's secure. You are always accepted by me. His love is steadfast. He never gets tired of you. Never. Your family might get tired of you. Your friends might get tired of you. He never gets tired of you. His love never runs dry. His love, his love never runs out. It always is steadfast. His love is irrevocable. And if His love is for you, it is enough for you. His love satisfies you. And if you have His love, then you can be free. Secure. Bold. Courageous. Happy. Thankful. Content. Comforted. Hopeful. Because His love will be with you now and forever. And it will satisfy every need. So, I'm telling you, it matters that he loves us. This text says, how do I know he loves me? Well, we've already said, we know he loves us because he has secured a glory that will not put us to shame. There's a glory that will not put us to shame. See, here's what suffering does. <laughs> if you don't endure through suffering, what do you do? Endurance is usually a spiritual battle. It's a fight. Well, what I do then is I 
grab onto something that I can touch and see to help get me through my suffering. And that's a gift from God, but it can't be an ultimate grab. Because earthly things, as much as it feels good in the moment, earthly things will disappoint. They will let you down. They will not be able to endure perfectly. Even the best intentions from some people end up hurting you, even when people don't even mean to, let alone some people mean to. So, the grab onto things, the house remodel, the upgrade in the car, the leaning on the job, working more so I can get the promotion, so I can have more money, so that I can finally be secure. We just got to be really careful. That the earthly grab is not betraying the ultimate grip of Christ. Christ. The glory of Christ. I long for Christ. Sometimes when we're tempted not to endure, that's what we do. We just grab on what we can handle. What's in front of us. We've got to be careful of the earthly grab. That our heart would long for the hope of the glory of God. But that hope, it won't disappoint you. How can you know the love of God for you? He has secured a future for you. He loves you. And it will not disappoint. It is better than advertised. I remember, I'll never forget. We went on a pastors and wives retreat several years ago. And we went to a restaurant. A restaurant that came recommended. I didn't know how highly it. We were just told it was good. So, you know, have you ever gone to a restaurant where you've been told like, okay, it's a good restaurant, and then you sit down, expectations might be pretty high, and it was like, yeah, it's okay, <laughs> wasn't all that, it disappointed, right? Well, I'm telling you, we went to this restaurant, maybe it was because my expectations were kind of just above average, but we sat down at this Jamaican joint, good night. Now, I tell you, the fellowship was good, but that's not what I remember the most. I remember the copious amounts of really good food sitting before us. And like, it still is etched in my brain as like up there, like in the top kind of five categories or experiences of eating. And what I think about is it was better than advertised. It was better than advertised. And I tell you, friends... The presence of Jesus forever will be better than advertised. It will not be just floating on clouds. It will be earthy. It will be relational. It will be emotional. It will be deeply spiritual. It will engage all of your senses and all of your feelings. And every part of you for all eternity will scream, This is better than advertised. This is better than I ever dreamed. It won't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out into your heart, He'll get you to the end. But I want you to know God loves you and He's got a home for you. And this isn't it. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It's with Him forever. You can know He loves you because He's secured an eternity for you. Look at the main anchor in this text. And this is honestly where I go. Because sometimes, you know, long conversations, I felt like I just lost it. Long, complicated sermons. Like, I thought Travis's sermon was great. I listened to wonderful preaching in this church. I think our preachers do an amazing job of expounding the word. And it's hard to remember all their points. Do I get an amen? Yes, I know it is, right? Okay, I get that. And it doesn't mean it was bad. It doesn't mean that our, our sermons should be pointless. I don't think that's the case. In multiple ways, it shouldn't be pointless. But it's hard to remember all these things. But when I stop and I am questioning whether God loves me, and I'm wondering why does it matter, the point of the Scriptures points one place. One place. How can I know in all of my distractedness, how can I know in all of my anxiety or discouragement, how can I know that He loves me? Look to Calvary. Look at the cross. 
There's no greater place to know you're loved. And that's what he says. How can I know the love of God has been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit? Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one's going to scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe perhaps for a good person someone would even dare to die, but God did something totally different than die for good people because those don't exist. It says, verse 8, but God shows his love. He demonstrated his love. He put his love on full display for us and that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. You want to know the love of God for you? Look no further than the cross. He loves you. It trumps every argument that your brain can muster up in your lowest moments. He died. There is no greater love. He rose from the dead. There is no greater power. And if he loves you with a dying and resurrecting love, then there is nothing you will face that is too much for him. How do I know the love of God for me? I said it this way, Jesus suffered for us at our worst. Jesus suffered for us at our worst. Have you ever wondered why sometimes we have to be told we're bad? Like, some of us walk around with a pretty low view of ourselves sometimes. Like, I'm horrible, I'm rotten. Like, we battle a lot of self-condemnation. And then to hear texts that just talk about our badness, it only kind of reinforces a bad narrative. Why do we talk about badness? Why does the scripture seem to harp on the badness of people? That's kind of where we've been in Romans so far. Humanity's pretty rotten. That's not very like life-giving. And for those of you who battle self-condemnation, no jokes there. It's a miserable place. It's painful. To constantly view yourself as a failure, never measuring up, not worth people's affections, to have that narrative running in your brain, it's painful. So why in the world do I hear about it so much here in Romans 5? Look at the words. Verse 6, while we were still weak. Okay, well maybe that's not so bad. It's morally weak. You're not strong enough to make the right decisions. Christ died for the ungodly. If you thought weak was too calm, you are not like God. You're ungodlike. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, intentionally choosing to go against God, we commit treason. And then verse 10, enemies. Look at verse 10. For while we were enemies, that means you're not neutral, but you're against him. Isn't that what enemy means? You're against me. That's how he talks about us. Why does he talk about our badness? To show us our need and to show us the extent of his love. We are bad, which means we are broken people in need of mending. We are sick people in need of healing. We are sinful people in need of forgiving. And without an accurate understanding of our state before Christ saves us and apart from Christ, without that, we will not groan for God. We will lean on our own abilities. Badness shows us our neediness. And here's what is beautiful. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 says this is the one to whom God's gaze is upon. Like the gravitational pull of His grace has eyes for this type of people. Who is it? The good people? The ones who are strong? No. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Telling humanity 
that we are weak, ungodly, is not name-calling. It's a reminder of our neediness and therefore a reminder of how far his love went to show us he loves us. One scarcely will die for a righteous person, although somebody might die for a good person, but Christ came. And that while we were still sinners, enemies, he died for us to convince us that he loves us. So he suffered for us, not at our best moments, when we were at our worst, to show us the extent of his love. When you're on your A game, you're pretty good, right? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you can all like have really shining moments of glory. Right? Like, you can be kind and tender. You can think about people above yourself. And that can happen. Like, there's, there's a lot to commend about your lives. But there's also times that you're not on your A game. And neither am I. What about then? What about then? That's when you might be tempted to question, does God really love me? Because we buy into this whole performance mentality, right? If I perform well, then I deserve love. If I don't perform well, I don't deserve love. Our homes sometimes mirror that. A lot of things mirror. It's based upon performance is how we get love. But God showed his love for us. Knowing that we are negative and critical. That we don't know it all. We're not as good as we want to be. Sometimes we can be a loose cannon. We can be angry or an anxious mess. And God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, he died for us. That affects our love for people. I'm sorry. If you really understand you are weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy, apart from some miraculous work of grace in your life, then you not only receive the love of God when you still have some of those evidences kind of seeping through in your life, you're not on your A-game, but you also now have a whole new category of receiving a love that you can give away. He loves us. And that love, that love will constantly be working for us. How do I know he loves me? Because Jesus suffered when we're at our worst. How do I know he loves me and continues to? Because Jesus suffered and rose to reconcile us to God forever. The text ends this way. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. You see that kind of echo back to verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, which is a summary of all of kind of chapter 4, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were still enemies, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Enemy is a strong word. I've mentioned this already. If you watch movies, it means antagonist. Like it's, it's one who is against. You might have watched Marvel movies. If I ask you who, and I, I use Marvel a lot. You know, I have kids. I love Marvel movies. Okay, it's, it's okay. I just like Marvel. It's good, you know. Watch a Marvel movie. You know who the enemies are, right? I could ask you, who are the enemies? Thanos, right? Like it doesn't take rocket science. You know, enemy. Ultron, Zemo, Hydra, and Red Skull. You, you know, like you know who the enemies are. They're not only against ideas. It's not like this philosophical mind battle. They're against them physically. They're trying to thwart plans. And God says that's who we are. Antagonistic. Not just philosophically opposed to God, but we try to thwart God's plans whether we know it or not. That's what we do. We're enemies. Apart from Christ. But in a twist of fate, what happens to enemies? If you watch movies, we get really happy when Thanos gets snapped away. 
Like, that makes us happy. When Ultron gets put away, when Zemo gets in prison, we get happy about these things because that's what happens to enemies. They get in prison, they get captured, they get disintegrated, whatever. It's like, we're good with that. It's called justice. But in a twist of fate, what happens if the hero then comes and says, no, I would like for this person to go. I'm going to get imprisoned instead. This is the gospel. Because of the death of Jesus, enemies who should justly be receiving that kind of treatment, death, imprisonment, you know, we should be receiving enemy type treatment. The hero of the story stands in our place, says, no, give it to me so that they can be set free. And so what he does is, according to this text, not only does he die for us, meaning paying the penalty that our sins deserve, but he also gives something to us. He gives us forgiveness and he gives us, he he makes the enemy a part of the family. He makes the enemy an avenger. He brings us in. Reconciliation. You know, if someone hurts you, you don't know that you want to be friends, let alone family. There's a distance that you want there. The gospel says he doesn't create distance. The love of God brings you together, reconciles you, makes you friends, family, reconciliation. The death of Jesus saved us from the wrath to come. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, how much more will we be saved by his life? Jesus didn't just die. He rose from the dead. And that kind of resurrection power gives us hope. It gives us hope that that grace is still working. It gives us hope that he still loves us. It gives us hope that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. It gives us hope. That there is a glory to come that's better than the brokenness and bitterness of this earth. It gives us hope. Because he loves us. You want to know how we know God loves us? You look to the cross. He suffered for the worst of us. At our worst. How do we know the love of God for us? We know the love of God for us. Because he has reconciled us. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. But he has brought us into his family. And so now we read the last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God. If you know he loves you, joy happens. There is this sense of we rejoice Not in our circumstances. We rejoice in God. He's consistent. He's faithful. He's steadfast in his love. I won't do it for time's sake, but I encourage you to go read Psalm 136. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Endures forever. And it just keeps saying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it tells you why you can, he can say it. Just read it. Psalm 136. The steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And if he loves you with that love, he not only saves you, but his grace is constantly with you. He'll get you to glory. And it won't disappoint. He loves you, church. Live securely in the love of God for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment that you would cause the penny to drop. Meaning we would genuinely take our discouragement to you and we would process process it through the lens of your love for us. If you love us, then we don't have to be discouraged because you're always working and you're not going to leave us. 
to those who are afraid, I pray that they would process that fear through the love of God for them, that God is right there with them. You are for them and not against them. And nothing can separate us from your love for us. Father, quiet, fearful hearts. For those who are hopeless, I pray, Father, all that would do was cause us to have less hope in the here and now. And that we would be convinced of your love for us because of Calvary and the resurrection. And we would have more hope for that day to come. Father, convince us of the love of God for us. Right now, I invite you into a time of just processing this. I wholeheartedly believe God is at work in your heart to convince you of his love for you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you don't have these promises that I have thrown out today. Those promises are accessed by you declaring that you are a sinner and that Jesus alone is the only one who can fix your heart and make you new and transform your desires. He is your only hope. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of all lords, boss of all bosses, king of all kings, and you confess and believe in your heart that Jesus did die in your place and rose from the dead, then you can be saved and you have this access into all these promises and you can know of this unique covenant-keeping love of God for you. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. And this is a time when every time we take it, it is a rehearsal that God loves you. So I've been thinking about this and maybe you could finish this sentence for yourself. I believe you love me because. I believe you love me because you've been stirring in my heart all morning. I believe you love me because you died for me. I believe you love me because you created, created me with a purpose. I believe you love me because I believe you're providing for me. I believe you love me because you have made me your friend. I believe you love me because you brought me into your family. I believe you love me because you died for me when I was at my worst. I believe you love me. And in all of this, confess. Confess those times of unbelief. And you don't have to be afraid to bring your mess because Jesus suffered for you at your worst. He knows your mess. So discouraged soul, fearful soul, hopeless soul, betrayed soul, come today and enjoy the love of God for you. Let's take a moment to meditate and then we will take the Lord's Supper.